Hello and welcome to Reformed Podmatics, a weekly podcast hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. This podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology both in our context and beyond. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Reformed Podmatics. I am Pastor Zach. And I am Pastor Mark. And today, as you can see from the title of the episode, we are going to be getting into some controversial ground. <laughs> we often like to do this. That makes for fun fun episodes, at the very least. This past uh, Monday, I was at the local coffee shop here in Ripon, one of the local coffee, sh- coffee shops, I should say, uh, and I was with my wife, and we bumped into a friend of the show who was just on a few weeks ago, Lucas Geiger. Uh, Shout out to was, Lucas. Yeah, hello, Lucas. <laughs> and he, uh, we got to talking, as friends do, and he mentioned, he's like, you guys probably won't even want to do it, but maybe you could do an episode sometime on altar calls. And so I texted Mark uh, later that afternoon and said, hey, We've gotten a recommendation to do an episode on altar calls, and I think it could be interesting. And so we've decided, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. So, Lucas, thank you for giving us some material. This one's for you, man. (laughs) This one's for you. Uh, Yeah, it's good. I actually really love when people tell us to do it on something because then it sort of saves us the work of... What do we think people want to hear about this <laughs> yep. week? Oh, people uh, in our church have asked me about this, too. Yeah, so, and I th- yeah. think almost every time we've done an episode on what, we, what we've been requested. So that is just an encouragement to any of you out there who may listen to us and may uh, be interested to hear our take. Not that we are the end-all, be-all on anything, uh, <laughs> much less of altar calls, but uh, if you're interested in hearing two pastors sit in an office and think about any particular issue, yeah, we love to hear it, and very often it's just it just saves us work and gives us something <laughs> yeah. that we know somebody's going to be listening to. <laughs> uh, so that's that's a good thing. Um, yeah, I mean, people approach me and and have asked, why don't we do altar calls? Yeah. So I, that's sort of it the question. Up. It's not just a um, a neutral question, I guess you could say, yeah. um, in that context. Obviously. I think as long as I've been at Edmond Valley, I don't believe we've ever done an altar call per se. I know that a handful of times after preaching maybe a more convicting or a more um, spiritually confrontational sermon, um, I'll invite people to talk with me and maybe in my office if they'd like. I'm going to, I'll just say I'll be in my church office and I'll be uh, there if somebody would like to come in and pray with me um, or... Uh, encourage people to go and talk with one another and um, get in touch with me during the week. But that's about the closest that we've done to asking for a response to a sermon at Almond Valley. Yeah, so that is an interesting place to start right there. You've kind of uh, given it away already. Yeah, We've not done an altar call. We typically don't do altar calls. (laughs) I I don't think either of us have, have done one really Ever? I don't think I've ever uh, asked for one. Maybe years and years ago before I ever arrived here, I, I can't really think of you anything. You didn't have a former life as a I, itinerant preacher? I did not. <laughs> I did preach a little bit when I was... Uh, I think I, my first sermon I preached, I was 19. Um, hmm. I think the video still exists somewhere on Vimeo, if anybody wants to watch it. 
it was probably pure heresy. In fact, I know parts of it were, thinking back to what I said, and I won't repeat it here for that reason, uh, but I was wearing some terrible clothing. Um, yeah, it was filmed on somebody's cell phone. Uh, but that is neither here nor there. I don't think I did any altar calls yeah. during those days. Um, and so maybe we should start with our general, our summary of our position mm. On altar calls, and we can start there, and then we can maybe spend the rest of the episode sort of unpacking the thinking that we have that goes into our general positions. Yeah, that's a good place to start. Um, I think when we, the fact that we don't do them, some people may assume that we think they're terrible. So right. I, I think that we would just want to start and say, um, there's there's obviously nothing in Scripture that would prohibit an altar call from happening. Um, so it, it doesn't seem to me that it would be wrong hmm. de facto and necessarily that a church would invite people to come forward after a sermon hmm. and uh, pray and um, follow Christ if they've never um, if they've never repented of their sin and prayed for their salvation and uh, approached God and sought God's face in that way. That it could be a really good thing for them to do, and so um, it seems that theologic a theologically defensible practice. Um, however, like we said, we we don't mm-hmm. we don't do altar calls at Almond Valley, and um, I, I say that I, I do like to call people to repentance. I, I don't know if I like to to say that, but I think it's a good thing to do. It's a repentance um, call. <laughs> it, there's a call to repent. Uh, just to do what Jesus does as he's beginning his ministry. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So um, that should be a part of a gospel presentation. Is is the challenge or um, the call? Exhortation? Yeah, the the direct address to the listener. That's what distinguishes preaching from teaching, I would say, is teaching is, is generally about Yes, um, a topic, yeah. whereas preaching, I am talking to the people who are sitting there, and I am, um, if, if the passage warrants it, calling to repentance and faith in Christ. So, yeah. um, so that that should be there, and I think that a lot of churches that are, that are opposed to altar calls maybe don't do that all as much as they should. That's probably the error historically of the Christian Reformed Church mm-hmm. is to say we don't really do altar calls, and so therefore we don't really challenge people to believe the gospel today, mm-hmm. repent of their sin, follow Christ, commit your life to him. Hmm. Um, and so they sort of err on the side of of not doing any um, kind of line in the sand, uh, Yeah, basically. just assuming that everybody here has right. faith, right? right. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, uh, so it, I can speak to you as faithful, regenerate people who don't need to be regenerated. Right. Uh, and so we don't want to be too much like those people who do the altar calls, and so... We don't want to sound too, just quite frankly, too evangelical. Mm-hmm. A lot of Christian Reformed people might say, uh, ministers. Yeah. So we're not going to put that pressure on people. Um, so I do think it's good. Um, the The principle, um, if we're going to look at it in its best light, is a good principle that it's good for people during a sermon, during a worship service, to commit their lives to Christ, mm-hmm. uh, to pray, um, to repent and to, to follow him, to put their faith in yeah. Jesus. Um, however, in general, I have seen altar calls uh, mostly used as a manipulation device to get particularly young people, kids, um, high school students, college students, um, mm. to get them to 
kind of emotionally respond to the the sermon that was preached and I, i've seen i've seen this create a confusion for people so that they they will start to learn because if they're told to come to the altar every week or uh, yeah. come to the altar at the end of every chapel, like that happened in my chapel services growing up in high school. It's everything ends with an altar call. They Kids start to understand that that is, um, that's the way to almost like manufacture being born again in a way. And, um, yeah. and that emotional response is the most important thing. Um, and, and a public display of that repentance is it sort of becomes more valuable in their minds than perhaps a private moment um, driving in the car being overwhelmed by the grace of God um, that can seem to take less significance than that that thing that I did at the end of chapel yeah. um, and, and that's that's the way that it's often received not just in chapels but in a lot of congregations yeah that is that is very true it, beca- it sort of takes on a a different life of its own in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, thinking about, I guess, my position on it, it all kind of comes down to what do we mean by altar calls. It's, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a broad number of things that fall under what people might call altar calls. Yeah, in a way, communion uh, could be an altar call in a way. Really. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the funny thing of this terminology yeah. is where did the term altar call come yeah. from? Most Protestant churches have resisted ever using the word altar as being an actual part of a like a feature in a church, uh, <laughs> like a sanctuary. Usually they'll call it the table. Um, there have been few and far between some high church people who have had what they've called an altar, but most low church people who are doing altar calls don't have altars. They mean basically the stage. <laughs> yep. uh, so often it. Yeah. it looks it looks like coming forward yeah. um, or um, raising your hand or maybe writing a, a, a note um, or sticking behind, everybody else gets excused. That's mm. what happens at uh, some of the camps that I've been to. Um, so there's different techniques. I would say that generally an altar call is just that, though. It's a technique that is used to elicit a particular response on the part of the one speaking. Um, and so this is where I get a little bit reluctant or resistant to altar calls, uh, so defined, mm. because I don't think that we should be thinking so much about techniques to elicit particular responses. Often it seems as if the speaker, you kind of know an altar call when you see one. That's maybe a good yeah, way of putting yeah. it. it. You can tell that the speaker wants to sort of pad their ego a little bit by mm. making certain responses happen amongst those who are in the so-called crowd. Um, and so they'll use sort of rhetorical devices or strategies in order to manufacture something right then and there. Mm. And there's definitely hmm. one of the key ingredients is the sort of, uh, I don't know, the spectacle of it all hmm. for everybody else who's there, but maybe not participating in the altar call. Maybe you didn't raise your hand or run down to the front or write your sins on a on a post-it note and tag it to the cross or whatever. Uh, but it creates a spectacle and I, wow, look, look what this guy's doing. So many souls have been won. Hmm. And so, yeah, I, I, th- I think... If we define it in that way, I would say I'm pretty resistant to it. But if we ref- if we put it in a different way of an invitation yeah. to know Christ, okay, then I I have done that several times. Sure. I do that a lot, actually. <laughs> I preach, for example, at Thursday lunch, which is a local ministry of high school students. We usually have 
oh, anywhere from 120 to 170 students who come for free food to one of the local churches here in town, Ripon Grace Church, and uh, we preach every other week. Um, we'll teach a lesson, and usually there's some sort of, if you believe this and you want to know Jesus, talk with us. So yeah. I guess that's an that's an altar call, I, I guess. Sure. Um, we so we we mo- mostly are preaching, um, and that's maybe part of my argument. I would, if we want to get into the scriptures here, I think a good place to look for all of this sort of stuff comes from the Book of Acts. Oh yeah, we see a lot of these early sermons from the early church, and we see sort of an outline form, maybe not verbatim what these sermons were. If we had recordings of them, I'm sure they'd be a lot longer. But mm-hmm. we see sermons like Stephen's in Acts chapter seven. We see. Uh, Peter and um, Cornelius' household in Acts chapter 10. We see some of Paul's sermons uh, starting in really, well, at least chapter 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know there's Especially a, 17 there. 17, yeah. yeah, in the Areopagus. I would say, just sort of perusing these different uh, episodes of sermons, there's not so much a, any manipulation. There's not uh, so much of a, if you want to make this decision right now, come forward. Um, it Some is, people do make that decision, but sure, they, yeah. yeah, and they do yeah. follow. Yeah, uh, that definitely happens. You can think of even Acts chapter seventeen; it's a good example. Paul is preaching to the philosophers at Mars Hill, who people who are gathered together to talk about the latest ideas. That's just something that we're told that they did quite commonly. Uh, in Athens, and so some people follow him. A lot of people ridicule him as being kind of crazy, but there are a few who follow him afterwards. Um, And so we see that the gospel produces good fruit. And And even immediate responses, yeah. Right, it it totally does. I I think what's interesting in looking at, maybe if it's just the the summarized version of their sermons throughout the book of Acts, I went through it right now and was looking through all of them just to make sure I wasn't off target here. (laughs) And it really seems like they're not giving it... Their evangelistic appeals are not what I would call make it or break it moments. Um, I remember growing up often feeling like, this is my moment. The preacher on stage is telling me that I must, if I want to repent of my sins, I must raise my hand and come forward Hmm. um, and must identify myself. And maybe we've all seen those sermons where somebody is... uh, Saying, everybody, close your eyes, and if you raise your hand now, nobody's looking, and you kind of, you kind of peek, and you notice nobody's raising their hand, but then they're starting to count. Oh, seven people, yeah. eight people, fifteen people, and you realize, uh, no, these numbers the are are, the are made up. <laughs> yeah. This is a little bit off. Um, but what's being done in the Book of Acts is that the evangelistic appeal is never really a make it or break it. This is your moment right here, right now. You must do it. Take it or like or or don't. Um, it really is a, maybe I kind of blew it already, it is a take it or leave it statement of truth. It is a preaching of Christ has died, Christ is risen, he has died for our sins, whoever believes in him will be saved. And so repent and and believe. Um, It doesn't so much seem as like a uh, raise your hand Mm. or come and sit on this thing and have your sins exposed. Um, Mm. Yeah. it's it, it can it's it's a pre- presentation and proclamation of truth of truth yeah and you can do with this truth what you want and the the preachers in the book of acts know that the spirit will work um and so whoever believes will believe it i don't need to make you believe i don't mm-hmm. need to uh manipulate you into believing there's no strategy or tactics 
that I can do. Now, this doesn't resolve the preacher of, of preaching in a compelling way, a persuasive way, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, we must realize that regeneration cannot be something we humans create or do. Or even plan for. We can't plan for it. Right, yeah. exactly. And like the, you, you drive by the charismatic church, revival happening this Thursday <laughs> yeah. night, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. and so the the assumption there is yeah. the, the altar call type of sermon that yep. people would hear. I, I don't, I, I think uh, Paul and Peter and, and the apostles would, and, you know, pastors following after them since since then to this day, would uh, would go desiring to preach the gospel to present the truth, hoping that a revival would happen, praying for revival, but never assuming yeah. that if we if we hit this note in the song hmm. right at the right time, and if yeah. I can, if if it, you know, like manufacture, just mm-hmm. to put it bluntly, uh, uh, an emotional scenario, um, then that will that will elicit a certain type of response of the Holy Spirit. And we right. can plan for every Thursday of that camp, yeah. that spirit, um, you know, appearing and uh, and prompting people to to raise the hand or to come forward. Hmm. Um, I really like the distinction you made um, between um, offering offering the truth, and and then hopefully we do see that response, like often happens in Acts, versus um, thinking of the altar call almost as the goal. Yeah, in a way, and and I I as ministers, both of us are preachers. I I know my heart, and I know that I would just sinfully like to see more. Oh, yeah. I'd like to see more results. You'd like to see the fruit right, right in front right, of you from what I just did. You know, all the work that I put into a sermon, and um, I I sinfully would would say, I want to know yeah. who that affected right now. Yeah, but you know, God does not work on our timetable, right? right? And, and because right when I start to think that way, yeah. I am not preaching for the right reason. Exactly. I'm preaching for the feeling of personal validation, personal encouragement. I'm up there essentially for me, um, which is, mm-hmm. that's a big, big step towards a bad, bad road, a bad destination. So... Yeah. Um, when the apostles preach, it, it's not so much um, because they desire, I think, a um, an immediate response. Like uh, to me, that's I just preached on Peter's in the interaction with Cornelius. It's a great example. So, so Peter comes to uh, Caesarea where Cornelius lives, and um, th- this would be a passage that a lot of altar call advocates would use for in favor, because what happens there is he comes and he preaches, and there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and Peter says right away, what is preventing these people from being baptized? He mm-hmm. baptizes them. Right and, then and there. And right then, right away, and and people would look at that and they say, see, we need to go out and do that thing. Yeah. Uh, but if, if you read the story carefully, uh, you don't have to read it all that carefully to see, actually, <laughs> <It's quite> that, <laughs> <clear>. <laughs> that what happens is Peter preaches, and then the Holy Spirit produces a phenomenal response. Hmm. And because of that phenomenal Holy Spirit response, Peter's response, his response to that is, wow, these people are believers. They mm-hmm. are born again. They're baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. Yep. And so I'm going to baptize them. It, it's not um, Peter going to um, manufacture something. In, in Corn- fact, it's already been started by the Spirit working right. in Cornelius's vision and in his dream. Exactly. He, he's not going there with 
even it seems that much of a plan actually yeah he's kind of like why did you guys bring me here yeah but it's it's almost he had to go because things have just been miraculously <laughs> um interwoven and orchestrated by by the lord and so the baptism that happens right away is a response to something the spirit did and for that Christians need to leave space in worship. So I, w- I would like to think, this is where I reveal some of my low church tendencies, <laughs> that if, um, if somebody uh, came to a worship service here at Almond Valley, and it was just very clear that things, something happened in their life, maybe speaking in tongues... I think could happen. Uh, I know that some people disagree with that, but we could do a whole um, episode on that. Yes, but uh, <laughs> but th- there is something phenomenal that happens. Sure, um, just like in Acts ten, or just like for the Phil- the, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, there's there's something just very clearly the work mm-hmm. of God, the Spirit of God is moving. Um, we do have to, based on Scripture, keep our schedules open. For that, liturgically speaking, yeah, um, that's actually where I, I, I struggle a little bit with the high church approach, which is so structured and so formulaic that I wonder if Peter's sermon to Cornelius would have been followed by a nice hymn, and then I'll see you later, and mm-hmm. and um, it's so structured that it can quench the spirit. I think mm-hmm. um, because of our desire, our European, quite frankly, desire <laughs> to stick to the schedule, to keep things in order. And, yeah. uh, and the orderliness is, is often a very good thing, but can prevent things just in, in the same way that uh, the chaos of maybe charismatics can be a, hmm. maybe have, have, have uh, a good openness to the Spirit's work, but can also be a bad thing too. Yeah. So um, it seems in that passage that the, the baptism happens as a response to something, not as a part of the plan for... Uh, Peter arriving at Cornelius's house. Yeah, I don't think Peter went thinking that that quite was going to happen that quickly, but right. yeah, it's quite clear that he does respond. I think what's interesting to me in that passage is right before that, you, you say that a pastor or a preacher shouldn't have the wrong motivations. That's exactly right. Peter goes, and he even tells them yeah. his motivations in verse 42. This is chapter 10 of the book of Acts. And he says, and he, that is Peter, or he has, that is Jesus, sorry. And he commanded us, so Peter's preaching here. He says, he commanded us, or Jesus commanded us, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So what he's saying here is that I'm not here trying to get you to raise your hand or come down the aisle. I'm here simply because I've been commanded to do this by Christ. I am called and charged to preach the gospel in season and out of season, as Paul would say. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I've been called here. You guys have, have sent for me, and so I'm here, and this is what I'm doing. I'm preaching to you. Now, this all comes after his vision of uh, being able, being allowed by the Lord to eat unclean meat, non-kosher mm-hmm. meat. Uh, and so that he understands that this means not only can he eat that meat, but that things that were once declared unclean, that is the Gentiles, are now uh, to be seen by him as part of God's kingdom. We know Peter struggled with this. Yeah. If you want to see more of a background on that, you can check out Galatians 1 and 2. Yeah. You can see Paul's uh, sort of feisty fight with Peter in those <laughs> chapters. Um, and so Peter comes to these Gentiles. It would have been a big deal for Peter. And he says, I'm, I'm here. I'm here to, to preach this to you. And 
Uh, if you believe it, yeah, that, that's how you will have the forgiveness of sins through his name, through Christ's name. And so, of course, they do believe it, and that's when he baptizes them. And so you see that sort of uh, take-it-or-leave-it approach. It's not that this is the decision right right here, right now, before I leave and right. head back, you yeah. have to make this decision. I remember as a kid who would hear these kinds of altar calls, I, I, I genuinely thought that if, if I don't do it right now, hmm. I miss my opportunity. Hmm. I can't do it tomorrow. I can't do it Tuesday. I can't do it Wednesday. <laughs> I have to do it today right here yeah. right now and if i and there would be a lot of guilt then that would come in the years of summer camp where i didn't rededicate my life to christ and repent thinking that i missed my opportunity and i know a lot of my friends and i we kind of looked forward to that thursday night we always knew it yeah. was going to be thursday night of summer camp week where there would be the <laughs> gospel call and so uh, we would that's even of, how vbs's are designed now yep yeah yep. Same it's thing. that same sort of thing and I would say it's not wrong to present the gospel to somebody no. and to encourage them, invite them, challenge them, uh, exhort them to repent and to believe. But um, sometimes it's going to happen later on. Sometimes people just need to chew on what uh, what has been said, and sometimes the Spirit needs to work in their hearts, and that doesn't happen immediately for all people. Yeah. And we could go through these other sermons. I, I don't think we need to, but... One other good example of a sermon from Paul is Acts 13, just a few chapters later. He says in verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. So again, you see that sort of uh, matter-of-fact, take-it-or-leave-it approach. He is just presenting the truth. Mm -hmm. He's not trying to manipulate them uh, into making a particular decision. He's not using techniques to elicit a response that he wants to see. He is simply preaching good news. Yeah. Uh, and that is the work of anyone who is who is doing evangelism. Uh, it's not to manufacture a particular response. Yeah, and at their best, we could say an altar call... Um, I'm an, I'm imagining a scenario where I, I would think it could be a good thing. So hmm. how about, like, I, I think, um, hmm. actually, uh, I think it was about three weeks ago I preached on the Ten Commandments, and I even said in my sermon, I am sensing this is this is weighty for people, because I'm, I'm just going through each command and showing hmm. the, the breadth of it and the conviction, actually, that it, that it, uh, that it works in the, the heart of somebody um, through the, the Spirit. And so, obviously, then follow that up with the the law of Moses that you could not fulfill, that you could not obey. Um, there is forgiveness for that through Jesus Christ. Therefore, repent. And um, in that moment, uh, I was sensing that the Spirit was convicting some people and also drawing people towards Christ, um, because we spent a good amount of time after that sermon in silent prayer. And it was it was emotional for me, and I think the emotions were genuine, were repentance and real gratitude for the work of Christ for me. So, could I have opened my eyes after that prayer and said Amen, and then and then invited people forward to um, publicly repent mm -hmm. and turn to Christ? I do think that that probably would have been okay in huh. that scenario. Actually, I think. It was. It would not have been planned. I don't think. I. I, I think that's one of the problems for me is mm -hmm. when it's planned, yeah. and um, when it's assumed the spirit is going to um, 
to arrive when we hit this note in the service. Mm-hmm. Um, so at its best, I think it could be like that. Somebody at a retreat, for example, and um, some retreats are very good and very good, just enjoyable fellowship, and you eat good food and you hear good Bible teaching. Some retreats, the Spirit moves very powerfully among people. I've been a part mm-hmm. of retreats like that before, and it's good to do something in response to that and talk with somebody, maybe not in an altar call way, per mm-hmm. se, but to say, God just did something, I've, I've got to talk with somebody about that in yeah. my life. So that's sort of at its best. That's how I would perceive them. Now, at their worst, I think, I do think of the, the summer camp scenario, hmm. where part of the reason, to be honest, and I don't think it's being cynical, is they've got a short amount of time here to get a, a result mm-hmm. from kids. And, and they count their numbers. Exactly. And yeah, they've got to get those numbers. So they can tell their donors. <laughs> yeah, that so so many kids came forward. This happens on Easter Sunday yeah. at a lot of churches. Um, so many people came forward. So many were baptized. Yeah. Um, Mars Hill really got caught up with this. And if you listen to yeah. the rise and fall of Mars Hill, really, where everything started to go totally haywire was when they got really wrapped up in those numbers at the Questfield hmm. Worship Service. I think it was in 2012 or 13. Yeah. And, um, and so I, that's at... At its worst, that's what it becomes, is hmm. um, we, we're going to start here on Monday, and we're going to lead towards getting this number of kids, um, or um, getting these kids to think really great things about the camp that they came to, because so many kids came forward. If you're thinking like that, you're thinking like a sales pitch team. Absolutely. And you're, trying to, and you're turning evangelism into your sales pitch. Yeah, to so that kids will want to come back to your camp next year. Yep. Because or more so kids the will want to come. Keep moving. Exactly, and so, man, that's dangerous territory. That's uh, yeah. Uh, that it's it's yeah. blasphemous actually. Um, in the end, and and that's that's part of the reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for listeners who are a fan of altar calls, do not hear me as saying altar calls are blasphemous, but they can be. Yeah, they can be. Um, and and some scenarios that I've seen. It can be uh, an ego trip for the speaker. Mm-hmm. It can be a uh, a manipulation of people, and um, and so, just as I said, there is a best case scenario where it could happen. I think it would be okay, but there's there are many worst case scenarios that I would guess many charismatics hmm. just don't even realize the danger of, yeah. of what's happening. Yeah, I know we've already made a good dent in time here in this yep. episode, but I would like to do a second, a couple seconds on a walk down memory lane <laughs> from church history. So the 19th century yep. is when this sort of stuff becomes really common uh, in the Second Great Awakening in particular. With the First Great Awakening, there was maybe, uh, you could say, the, the beginnings of this, but it was... I think it was much more biblical in the way that it was being done, as far as I can tell. Second Great Awakening, we have things like uh, Charles Finney's New Measures, which was sort of a pamphlet that he created Mm -hmm. telling others how they could create revival and be itinerant revival preachers and kind of start these big movements. In certain parts of the eastern United States, which is where a lot of Americans were living at the time, there hadn't been a whole lot of westward expansion Mm -hmm. that was beginning to happen. So you have a lot of the frontier revivals and so on. Kentucky and Tennessee. Yep. Yep. Uh, But it was mostly in in the... uh, in the upper, in the sort of Yankee side of things, it was not even really in the South, as far as I know. Uh, there, I'm sure there was some of that, but a lot, a large portion of it was in the uh, 
the upper yeah New England East, New yeah. England area yeah. and Pennsylvania and New York and so on. And there was a, a region, I believe, in actually in New York. Uh, that was called the Burned Over District after a while because there would be so many revivals coming through. And it was such a susceptible region to revival. People loved it. People would flock by the thousands. But these people would keep coming through. These preachers would keep coming through. And it eventually became kind of a dead zone spiritually. People were so, I think, disillusioned, desensitized to this idea that uh, I can have these amazing spiritual mountaintop moments, and these are going to keep happening. I don't really need to even do a church. I don't need the normal Christian church life. I just need these revivals. Yeah, I can go and get my sin dealt with by doing whatever I need to do. Whatever, I'll just do the tactic, altar call. The altar call. Yeah. Pray, pray the prayer that I'm told to pray. Um, kind of get my fire insurance taken care of. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was kind of this like. You can kind of think of it as like energy jink Christianity. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's my youth pastor way of putting it. Yeah. But it's that Christianity that's not really a, a healthy Christianity. It's not daily just, you know, working out, eating well, and having good <laughs> yep. food and a good routine. Plotting along, and, yeah. And plotting, but yeah. it was just looking for the next high. And this kind of created a, a dead zone spiritually for these people. And uh, you can go look up uh, more about that uh, the burned over district, but uh, as I've mentioned in the past, a theologian I I love in many ways. I don't think he's a saint and uh, or perfect. <laughs> he's a saint in the technical sure, sense, sure. I guess. Uh, but I don't think he is perfect in every single way. But I think he has a lot of interesting thoughts. His name is John Nevin, and he was a strong crit- critic of all of this uh, in his own time because he was in, as a young man he was kind of involved and really taken into the. The new measures and kind of loved this this revivalism, and then started to see for himself sort of beneath the curtain. Mm. Um, and so he writes in his book, "The Anxious Anxious Bench," which was a technique used by Finney and others, uh, where people were called forward and shamed for their sin, and but publicly told that they needed to confess in front of everyone. So it was called the bench often, but he calls it the anxious bench. So he says that under the guise of these new measures, he says, and I quote, conversion is everything, sanctification, nothing. Religion in this system, he's saying, is not regarded as the life of God and the soul that must be cultivated in order that it may grow, but rather as a transient excitement to be renewed from time to time by suitable stimulants presented to the imagination. Hmm. A taste for noise and rant supersedes all desire for solid knowledge. The details of Christian duty are but little understood or regarded. Apart from its seasons of excitement, no particular church is expected to have much power. Family piety and the religious training of the young are apt to be neglected. And so here he's sort of juxtaposing uh, that sort of energy drink Christianity versus the slow nurturing of the ordinary means of grace. Um, Maybe he overdoes it here a little bit, uh, but I think the point is clear and Mm. well taken that in doing this over and over and over again and making the Christian faith really about these altar calls, I think it sends completely the wrong signal to not just those who are new to Christianity, but those who are mm. uh, who are faithful yeah. Christians, they begin to think that it's about these mountaintop experiences sure. and not about the day-to-day, uh, the duties of Christian obedience and living the, 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 the Christ-filled life, uh, living and enjoying God forever. Um, 
Yeah. Even in the day-to-day. It's very American. It's very spectacular. Yes. Yeah. So the spectacle is a huge part yeah. of it. Yeah. And so I think that there's something to be said. Maybe he's a little bit, a little bit curmudgeon-y right there, <laughs> uh, but there's something to be said. I guess Eugene Peterson put it well, and he said talked about a long obedience in the same direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's what Nevin is getting at here. And I, th- I think that's ultimately my big issue with the sort of flashier versions of these so-called altar calls. Yeah, we can think of people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who uh, came to this moment in their life where they really needed to stand for the Lord and, yeah. and do the right thing. Well, what did that come from? That came from, that came, that was cultivated in a soil of devotion to the Lord yeah. over many, yeah. many years. And so Amen. their big moment of their life, and a very exciting moment, certainly, <laughs> Was um, was developed, uh, was made possible by the Lord working in their life over years and years of prayer, just like Daniel, you know, and he went to his room to pray hmm. prayers of thanksgiving every day, and then the lion's den comes when he's an old man. So hmm. um, I think that uh, <laughs> certainly the spectacular is is almost worshipped, I would say, in American hmm. evangelicalism, um, so much so that the person who has not had one of those experiences ever or recently would wonder if something's wrong with them. Yeah. And, and that would be one of the the downsides of altar call culture, I mm-hmm. would say. Um, people will ask us that. I would guess you, hmm. in your visits with older people, and, and I know me in my visits also with elderly people, would say, is there something wrong with me that I've never yeah. heard God's voice audibly or um, had one of these um, these experiences where everything changed for me in a, in a moment, in the blink of an eye, yeah. and I was overcome. Um, I would say, I would always say to such a person, it one should be, I think, regularly emotionally affected by the gospel. So hmm. we don't we don't follow the dead and deadly letter, uh, you know, as yeah. if. Emotions have nothing to do or nothing to teach us. Yeah. Um, in fact, I would even say it's a it's a mark of a true Christian to be in awe of God and mm. um, even emotional about the work of Christ for us. Um, that's not the whole point of Christianity, but I think that is one of the mm. the the markers of of true Christian faith is yeah. just absolute gratitude to God and and really joy because of that. Mm-hmm. However, um, expecting to find that at that exact moment of the worship service is, to me, putting God in a box, in in a way. Um, There's an irony that comes with this, that the Charismatics (laughs) would always... God's so exciting, he can move in an instant. Right, right, that the Charismatics would always say, you put God in a box with your liturgy, um, but I would maybe turn that around to the altar call person and say, no, I think you actually Mm -hmm. do so by saying that God will appear at this exact moment in the worship service, um, yeah. so regularly, or, so, or during the camp, uh, you know, during every Thursday the, the, evening. During the chorus, the praise chorus, right? when the bass hits, or whatever. And so I think maybe the, uh, the response to, to this phenomenon, this, this trend, I could even say, is having a healthy pneumatology. Um, mm. a pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit, and a healthy ecclesiology, the study of the Church. Yeah. So how does the Spirit work in the Church? Well... As Reformed Christians, we believe uh, he works through the preaching of the gospel, and so 
I hope that that happens every Sunday. But he also works in the church as people spend time in family devotions. Hmm. Um, he works in the church as people go to their Bible studies and maybe linger around to have a, a probing conversation with yeah. a buddy or a sister in Christ who, you know, you've just been discussing something. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think we want to put the Spirit in that box, and uh, we don't want to put the church, sort of narrow things down to the exact moment that everyone's going to come to the Lord is uh, mm-hmm. moment 55 of a worship service, <laughs> or minute 55. So um, that, that's kind of where I would want to go, is, is avoid the extremes of limiting the Spirit on either side, being overly, yeah. uh, overly structured, um, or overly reliant on that emotional high of the worship service. Yeah, yeah there will be many times where people who are Christians have emotional highs. Yeah. At least that's that's the norm. Um, I think it's right to say that you should have an emotional... Uh, you should, the gospel should make you emotional in some yeah. ways. There will be spiritual times where you're dry and you feel cold, Um but there should be times also where uh, you know how thankful you are, and mm. there there's that emotional feel that you get. Not that the feel is everything. Yeah. Uh, and I don't even know if you seek the feeling as much as it just happens, just like for Cornelius. Right. Yeah. You cannot concoct the feeling. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's an after or it's a byproduct. You could right. say right um, of it. But yeah, I think this is a fairly good overview for anyone who's <laughs> listening of our thoughts on altar calls. Lucas, I hope that this yes. has been helpful for you in some small way. Uh, Lucas will be doing altar calls at Escalon Christian Reformed <laughs> Church the next yeah, time. Yeah, the kids in the upper room youth group better uh, better watch out. <laughs> if people were are local, they know Escalon Christian Reformed Church is a, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say an, a, an extremely traditional church, but uh, a pretty... Um, more um, traditional than tra- not, traditional the conservative say. church yeah so um, <laughs> but we jest so uh, <laughs> yes we do um, so thank you for everyone for listening and we'd, we'd love to hear the responses and comments maybe people have uh, disagree because an altar call was a pivotal moment in your life and um, just I'm as not I denying said that can't happen <laughs> yeah just as I said it that isn't necessarily a bad thing but I yeah. think we should have our eyes open right as Don Carson says be open-minded but not empty-headed and I think that that's the way that we can approach these altar calls is be aware of some of the manipulation tactics that could be at work, mm. but also be open to the spirits moving, and that could be a good time of spiritual growth for somebody. Yeah, the church was faithful for hundreds and hundreds of years without them. Yeah. I don't think that they're absolutely essential sure. for the Christian faith. Great. That being said, we would love to hear any feedback or comments from you all. But until next week, grace and peace be with you all. All right, bye.